Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 7th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 23, verses 15 through 35. The words of the wise continue to teach us concerning the great value of wisdom in every aspect of our lives. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Heckman, we, we did start a new section in the book of Proverbs yesterday with this section called The Words of the Wise. It's got a slightly different character than what we've seen since Proverbs chapter 10. But again, like much of the rest of the book of Proverbs, it seems a bit more random at times. Thoughts are not always closely connected to one another, one following the next. What do we need to know about this section, The Words of the Wise, and Proverbs wisdom literature as a whole? That'll help us with the verses we have for today. Well, the genre of wisdom literature, maybe that'd be a good place to start, is relatively straightforward. Uh, When you do a little bit of studying in Scripture, you find the books that fall into this category are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And you might say wisdom literature could be described as books and sayings written by wise men, by sages, and in this particular biblical context. They're meant to impart godly wisdom, uh, practical guidance to their readers, where if they're faced with certain decisions in life, this will give them, here's the will of the Lord, here's a wise thing to do. And when we get into Proverbs in particular, um, the uh, NIV study Bible gives a helpful kind of concise explanation. What's a proverb? Uh, They describe it as a short, compact statement that expresses a truth about human behavior. And to express this, as you see throughout the whole book of Proverbs, and certainly in this section that we'll address today, you see a lot of different ways that they make these points with figures of speech like Uh, metaphor, uh, simile, uh, different comparisons that they'll make to certain things where they take maybe a real life object or situation and say, just like you see this happening in life, you know, if you do this, this will happen. Uh, So it's, it's a, it's a kind of a simple way to tell people, here's what the will of the Lord is. Here's the way to do a wise thing. And when we get to 23 verses 15 through 35, we're, you know, deep in the heart of this book. And it's easy to see Proverbs as a bunch of disconnected, random sayings as what I, you know, approaching the book for the first time. I don't remember when I first read it, but I thought, you know, this is a lot to remember. And there's just these kind of piecemeal sayings left and right. How do you make sense of the whole thing? But actually there is some good uh, structure and context that can help you kind of put it in the broader perspective and see how it connects together. So the particular context in this section, actually, it really begins back in, if you look at 22 verse 17, uh, where if you have it in your Bible, it might have this marked off or not. It says words of the wise. And this is where a section, I I believe it's 30 sayings of the wise are recorded in the next um, 
group of verses, and it starts at 22.17, ends at 24.22, and um, Solomon put these together, and he compiled all these sayings, you know, adapting them for divine purposes uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, of course, and if you look at how these are relayed, uh, if you look at, I, th- I believe it's... Um, <clears throat> I don't know where the language of father and son comes in particularly, but these are given as as though a father were giving them to his son. And this actually mimics a lot of, um, I guess, Near Eastern wisdom literature, Egyptian wisdom literature, where uh, a, a father would try to impart wisdom to his son so that he leads a good life, does what he's supposed to do. And uh, that's not to say this is exactly the same. Of course, it's for godly purposes. But um, this portion that we're reading today falls in this larger section called Words of the Wise. And uh, if you look at the the portion prior to the section, uh, the lead up, there's a really helpful verse to help make sense of what is the point of these sayings, and it really probably illustrates the point for every proverb in in Proverbs well. If you go to 22 verse 19, it reads, um, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you even today. Uh, and, and what is being made known, uh, go back to verse 17, the words of the wise. So the, the purpose for giving these are, you know, to shape the hearer, to be more faithful to God's will, uh, to know what God's will is. That's one of the functions of the law is to reveal what is what is good and pleasing in God's sight. Um, and it's interesting, as I read through these, you can see quite a few of these phrases repeated, even just in this small section, I believe the rest of Proverbs includes some more, uh, but you look at, um, don't move an ancient boundary set up by your fathers, uh, comes up in both 22, 28 and 23, 10, and just more phrases that are repeated, which probably means they're given a little bit greater importance or prominence. Uh, when you find something repeated in a text, you're supposed to pay a little more attention. Um, and the same kind of goes for 24 verses 1 through 34, closing out uh, this this section um, of the sayings to the wise. And you see a lot of stuff repeated, the exhortations to attain wisdom, uh, to fear the Lord, to refrain from envying wicked men. That's a big one in this section. And then um, the future hope is repeated. And uh, I believe it's, we see it in 2314. And I believe, or maybe 2414, I want to say, um, yeah, it's know that your know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. And that pretty much says the same thing we see in twenty three eighteen in our section. Uh, Surely there is a future, and your hope will be, not be cut off in relation to not any envying the wicked. So, in in terms of context, we see very similar same to what we see throughout the rest of the book, uh, especially grounded in the fear of the Lord. But this is part of a section that's traditionally known as the 30 sayings of the wise that Solomon compiles and uh, writes for people to know what is God's will uh, in this particular situation relating to uh, very practical everyday situations. 
the repetition in the book of Proverbs is one of the things that does stand out. And that's true throughout scripture that God repeats himself. And as you said, it's, it's something we should Mm -hmm. pay attention to. The thing about Proverbs is it doesn't always repeat itself in the most predictable way. Maybe if I could say it that way, that you'll get this repetition of adultery in this section and then it comes up later or, or, you know, I mean, we'll see that today. We're going to talk about drunkenness today, gluttony, the overindulgence, maybe addiction. We're going to talk about these themes that we've seen come up previously. We should be paying attention to them. They hopefully are familiar to us because we've seen them not only just in this saying, the the 30 sayings of the wise, but even in everything else that Solomon has given us. And the idea of the father speaking to his son, that's a theme that's been throughout the whole book, going all the way back to chapter one. You get these addresses to sons throughout that the book has a, a teaching quality to it that a, a parent would give to his biological children, that a pastor would give to his parishioners, this this almost catechetical nature of the book continues, whether it's you know wisdom that Solomon himself composed of his own will, or and, and again, all done according to the Holy Spirit, or whether it's something he's taking from another source and he's adapting to a this godly fear of the Lord context that he gives us here. So with that, we've got plenty of verses to look at today, Pastor Heckman. Let's start reading here in, in Proverbs chapter 23, starting at verse 15. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. We'll pause there for, for this side of the break. Lots of stuff there about my son from the father. I mean, that that gets repeated several times just in those few verses that we read. Uh, One thing that comes up, and we'd be remiss not to mention it again, is the fear of the Lord. It's there in verse 17. Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. It's a theme that shows up throughout the book of Proverbs. It's the beginning of instruction, the beginning of wisdom. Solomon has already told us. How do we rightly understand this fear of the Lord, though, Pastor Eggman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to, I believe it's chapter 9, verse 10. This is probably one of the more well-known verses in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So thinking about that term fear, I have a feeling it's largely misunderstood in the biblical context because we associate it with what people commonly kind of in our secular world associate with fear. So I actually did a word search or a synonym search, I might say. And uh, I thought, what what are some things that people associate with fear? And here's some of the ones that came up. Uh, terror, fright, horror, alarm, panic, agitation, dread, and trepidation. And so understandably, people hear these words or they hear fear and then they think, here's all these associations why am I told to fear God? And this is something repeated quite often throughout the scripture, the fear of the Lord. It's not just Proverbs. It's a lot of different 
lot of different writings. So I, I think the best way I heard this explained is to understand the difference between what the, I believe the, the Lutheran confessions describe it as the difference between a servile fear and a filial fear. So uh, a servile fear might, you might picture that as the relationship between a cruel boss and their worker, where there's a great deal of mistreatment and uncertainty. Uh, the worker might, he just lives in fear of his boss because the boss is a poor boss. He doesn't treat him well. Uh, might fire the worker without a, any warning. Um, can't be counted upon to pay fair wages or treat the worker with respect or kindness or even do his own job with integrity. And this creates a great deal of uncertainty. And the, the fear is, I don't know what this guy's going to do to me or gal. Uh, so I'm constantly living in fear of I could lose my job any minute. I don't know if, um, you know, if, if I'm going to be paid like I'm supposed to be. So that that's a negative fear that I think is what more people have in mind when they think of fear is just this uncertainty and ambiguity, which creates anxiety and uh, terror, or you creates a terrified person. Uh, so there's no security or comfort in this kind of relationship. Uh, but then you look at uh, filial fear, on the other hand, and that's essentially the proper relationship between a father and his children, parents and their children, where um, there isn't kind of an element of fear where parents are called to discipline their children. Uh, and of course you fear discipline if it's actually effective. Um, you know, the, growing up, the worst thing that could happen to me was going to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, my, my parents were not bluffing when they said that, you know, we'd have, um, uh, you know, they'd go out on date night and we got to watch like, the newest Disney movie or something. And if you uh, didn't do your chores, if you were mean to your siblings, you had to go to bed right after supper at like 6.30. And then you, like they sometimes watch the movie right outside my bedroom, which is where our TV was. And it was like, oh, this is terrible. You know, they weren't joking. And so there's a fear element there where there there are consequences for your actions. And certainly that should shape, you know, I'm going to think twice about doing something wrong. But then it's... Um, even though the parents are in that position, that godly position of authority where they're supposed to discipline their children to shape them, it's something they're always doing from a position of love. Uh, because the, the discipline is always meant to shape you to be more faithful to God, to be a um, uh, you know a better sibling, a better son or daughter, things like that. And um, it's given not with the intent to harm or belittle someone, but it's always meant to teach and shape you to be more faithful to God. And it's really, I think, the best way to understand a proper fear of God. Uh, we certainly fear the wrath of God uh, because God does discipline his children, as the scripture makes clear, and there are clear consequences for sin. Uh, so if there's no law, you might say, uh, to condemn us in our sin, and then uh, I think the confessions describe the law as making threats where uh, you know, if you neglect the Ten Commandments, if you make other things your God, if you, um, you know, if you murder things like this, there are consequences uh, for these sins. So there's certainly a fear there where you want to, you know, respect what God has said in His law. Uh, but we know it, the same way with the parental relationship. God always does this out of love because what is, um, oh, what is the passage? Uh, God only disciplines those He loves. Um, I. I want to say it's Hebrew. I'm, I'm thinking Hebrews 12. I want to say is the I reference. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a key thing to keep in mind. So if you're undergoing that discipline, um, you're under, 
not only undergoing that, but you know that God loves you here. He wouldn't shape you to do this. He wouldn't do it unless it was necessary to preserve your faith and shape you to be more like Jesus, basically. Um, and I, I heard someone say it really well this way. Maybe this describes it a little bit better, too. Um, the proper fear of God is meant to drive away all other sinful fears or fears that would lead us into sin. So uh, if you fear man more than you fear God, you're going to be doing things to please man. You're going to say things that are not uh, in line with scripture. You're going to kind of orient your life around pleasing other people rather than pleasing God. And that draws you away from the scriptures. It uh, weakens your faith. It draws you away from God's house. Uh, but if, if you fear the Lord properly, you remember I have a few things here. Uh, first, man can do nothing to you. Psalm 118 verse 6 really lays that out well. Um, God is the one who can and does judge sin, so we remember that. Uh, that's where that fear comes in. Um, but then we also know that God loves us according to his grace in Christ. So uh, it's really, um, I think, I think, Someone even said it this way, too. When the, when the fear of God is all you have left, you have nothing left to fear. Yeah. So when the fear of God drives away those sinful fears, um, you realize that I don't actually have to fear God because he loves me in Christ. You know, for Christ's uh, death and resurrection, that proves God's love to me. Um, so when, when the writer of Proverbs put, you know, when you put in this broader context and you understand what they're actually saying in fear, it makes a whole lot of sense because he's trying to say, don't let the fear of what other people are doing and their successes or your status and their standing drive your actions. Let the fear of the Lord, which acknowledges his law, but also his gospel, drive you uh, to make your decisions. And that, um, that's, that's what's going to keep your, uh, your perspective on things really focused on God's word rather than man's word or something like that. Um, so I, I, hope that's a helpful way to, to picture it. I don't know if you have anything to, to add to that, Tim, that I missed or maybe misspoke. No, I, I think you, you laid it out very well. The fear of the Lord is obviously a huge concept in the book of Proverbs, and it's a really big deal throughout the Old Testament, and it is carried into the New. The, one of the ways that I, I think I, I titled the sermon once, Don't Be Afraid of Fearing God, that, that there's this sort of juxtaposition that we do need to fear God. But as you said, when we fear him in the way that in this filial fear, the the fear of the son, that actually does take away the fear, the terror, the all those synonyms that you gave us at the beginning, the dread, the trepidation, <laughs> the the proper fear of God takes away all fear. Uh, one of the ways that I've I've thought about it is that the the fear of God recognizes who He is, who I am, and how I stand in relation to Him. And I, I think, and then when you think of that from from the perspective of both law and gospel, that really helps hold some of these things together. Because when I when I know who he is and who I am, one of the things I see is I see I'm a sinner. And that does lead to some, you know, fear and trepidation, the fear and trembling sort of fear, and rightly so. But then when I also see who he is, in, and here's where the filial fear comes in, in his son, Jesus Christ, then I know that that fear is actually taken away because he's not... He's not standing over me to condemn me, but he's come to save me. And, and I mean, all of that, it, we live in that kind of tension, I think, as, as Christians, that it's, you know, and part of it, it goes to the law-gospel distinction, that, that we, we have both of those things going on at the same time. I recognize in my sin that, that God rightly should 
send me to hell. And yet I know in the gospel, in his son, Jesus Christ, that that's not what he's going to do. He's saved me and he's keeping me in that, in that saving faith unto life everlasting, which I, I think, you know, really relates to how Solomon continues in verse 18. And he says, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. This is one of the places where Solomon's pretty explicit about the future. I've said several times throughout the book of Proverbs that you need to have the resurrection in the background of a lot of them, because there there are things that Proverbs will say that when you look at life, it doesn't seem to go that way, <laughs> that that the righteous way of life, the, the way of wisdom, doesn't always lead to the earthly blessings that Solomon says it does. And you need to have the background of the resurrection in mind to understand those rightly. And here he's pretty explicit about it because he says, surely there is a future. Your hope will not be cut off. So how does, how does that relate to what we're talking about with the fear of the Lord? So uh, you're exactly right. And I, I, when I read this passage, I immediately thought of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 16 through 18. And I'll, I'll just read that passage real quick. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. So this is is what... um, I don't know that I'd heard this term before I got to seminary, to be honest. So for all the listeners, that sounds like gibberish, completely understandable. But but we use the, the theological term for this was eschatology or eschatological hope, uh, which comes from a word in the Greek meaning last things. And and basically, it's it's a, a pretty basic, straightforward thing where it's, it focuses on the future hope, the future promises that are grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, specifically that will come to fruition on the last day uh, when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. And so that's what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, he brings us up, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit, too, uh, when death will be swallowed up and... Um, and uh, the sting will be gone and we'll have a resurrection. Uh, but Proverbs 23, 17 through 18, um, not just that first half with not envying sinners, but the second half is really grounded in that eschatological hope, that future hope that we have where we see that we see present success from people who are not living according to God's will. They are not putting this wisdom to practice, and that can be a very discouraging thing. And it can almost be a means by which Satan uh, takes what we read in Proverbs and even the rest of the scriptures and uses it to discourage us because he almost tries to make us think there's a there's a disconnect between what God says and what's happening in, in the world. So if you look at, uh, go back to Proverbs 2, 21 through 22, it says, For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Uh, so that even is, is a, basically a future hope where you can't see the outcome it's promising. Or even go to Proverbs 20, 27, uh, where it says the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So the the difficult thing is taking a look at what's going on in the world right now and reading the word of the Lord and trusting that God is still in charge and will do what he says he will. Um, and I think what Solomon is trying to guard against here is seeing the success of wicked people 
and letting that envy of their success drive you to be unfaithful, to do unwise things. Um, and we might ask, why does God let these wicked things happen? Why are p- people who are so you know, clearly intent to violate God's will and take advantage of the vulnerable and do all these terrible things, why are they allowed to prosper while Christians who are faithful are persecuted, marginalized, murdered, all this stuff? Um, and this is where this this future hope is so important because it grounds the present reality. It says, whatever you see now is that evil, that wickedness will will not last. It's temporary. Um, and that's something that, you know, we do see in, to a certain extent here on earth because God has instituted, um, especially, you know, righteous um, uh, rulers to condemn wickedness, to punish sin. That's what when it, Paul says one of the reasons God instituted government was to um, punish the wicked, encourage uh, people to do good, uh, protect the weak and all that. So God does bring some temporary justice here on earth, but we know ultimately this eschatological eschatological um, hope says that, um, you know, the sin will one day be completely eradicated. There will be no wicked people to envy because there will be no wickedness anymore. And I think... I don't know if I want to say more important, but maybe just as encouraging as um, those who trust in God's promises will be vindicated. Um, and to be vindicated means basically to be proven right, to prove that you were you were on the right track with this. Your faith was not empty or uh, misguided or misplaced. And we see that very clearly in Jesus, uh, where look at what happened to Jesus, where he was succumbed to the torture and murder of uh, wicked men who condemned him unfairly and uh, had an unfair, unjust trial, subjected him to torture that basically brought him within an inch of his life and then put him on the cross and and murdered him. Uh, And of course, this was all part of the, the, the salvation plan, the passion narrative where Jesus takes God's wrath uh, for sin upon himself in our place. But what could Jesus have done there? He could have envied wicked men, uh, could have uh, d- d- denied his uh, the Father's will and, and done things his way. But uh, Jesus trusted that uh, the promises that uh, I, I will be raised from the dead uh, and God vindicated everything he said and did. He didn't uh, take the sinful way and envy the people who were killing him. Um, he said, I trust in the Lord and the Lord vindicated that trust by raising him from the dead. The ultimate affirmation that, uh, we can trust God to keep his promises. And I, I believe that's really what Solomon is getting at here is you can trust God to do what he says he will. And don't let the, the present difficulties take your eyes off that future hope that will not cut off, be cut off. And I, I think that's what he's getting at here. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. Proverbs, when it, you know, when it, when it say, says things like, what did you, you bring up? The fear of the Lord prolongs life back in Proverbs 10. And we've, we've seen that elsewhere too, or, you know, the promise that's attached to the fourth commandment that you'll live long in the earth. If you honor your parents, you'll live long in the earth. Well, that that's not always true. There are people who've honored their parents that haven't lived very long lives, or people who've died as Christians at an early age. The The book of Proverbs, in order to make good sense of it, you have to have that foundation of the resurrection. That 
yes, those things generally are true, that, that it, and it's often happened, but when it doesn't happen, that you wouldn't somehow think, well, then I should forsake the fear of the Lord, or I should forget honoring my father and mother because I didn't see that this happened. No, the reality is in the resurrection, these things are fully true. That is the final vindication. As you said, we see it fully in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 7th. We're studying Proverbs chapter 23, verses 15 through 35. We've got Pastor Joel Heckman with us. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Remember that if we miss something that you really wanted to hear more about, Give us a call on the listener comment line, 314-996-1542. Leave a message there or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. I'll be recording bonus podcast material that'll come out online or wherever you get your podcasts to help you sharpen your faith in Christ with anything that we may have missed here on the air. Pastor Hagman, as we reflect upon this text that we read so far, one of the themes, as we've said, is this theme of the relationship between father and son, the role of teaching. And we've seen this throughout the book of Proverbs. It's there in the fourth commandment that honor your father and mother is a big deal from the side of the child. But that also says something about the importance of, of parenthood as well. Mm-hmm. And in the fourth commandment, as you just brought up, Martin Martin Luther talks about uh, fear, fear and love of God. And again, the fear, fear of God comes up again, but so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. And then even in Exodus 20, verse 12, uh, it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you which again is the only commandment with a pro- that promise attached to it explicitly. There's other ones associated more implicitly with the, the other commandments, but it's interesting that it's the first earthly relationship addressed in God's commands where we have the first table of the, the commandments, which addresses our relationship with God. But then we have the second table four through 10 that addresses our relationships with one another. And the, the parenting relationship is so important I believe that's why it's fronted here. It's it's not that the other ones aren't important, but this has so many wide-reaching implications. And so it's no wonder that Solomon uh, focuses on this here. Uh, 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. And then a couple more verses in 24 and 25. So I think this is important to focus on, not just because Solomon is doing it, but I think get the sense that the wider culture tends to belittle the vocation of parenting or at the very least downplays its importance um, where it's, it's not just something that's important for parents. It's something where the entire church can be supportive of this vocation. Um, and we, we see 
psalms exhortations listen to the father uh don't uh cause your mother grief uh it's an important relationship for him so talking about this when it talks about listen to your father first of all i think we'd see that uh that assumes that the father has something worth saying (laughs) um so that's a charge to fathers uh certainly mothers too but primarily fathers as god has set things up and family relationships are the ones who are called to impart the faith uh and certainly take this wisdom uh and um righteousness given by God and uh, teach it to their to their children. Uh, so we see first we receive this wisdom and righteousness through the means of grace, word and sacrament, uh, where we are baptized into God's family. We receive the Lord's Supper. We receive the words of absolution. We read the word of God. Um, but God takes parents um, when uh, we we raise our children, he takes parents and puts them in a position to also uh, nourish the faith of the children after these things take place, where baptism isn't just a one-time event. It's where you grow throughout your life being nourished in the faith. You go through catechesis. You continue to receive the Lord's Supper. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's something that probably for one reason or another, whatever it is, maybe it's because the culture doesn't place much value on it. Maybe it's because kind of going back to our previous point where if you can't see the immediate results, it can be discouraging. Uh, I, I, for some reason, I, I get the sense that we don't think parenting is as important as it really is because we don't see the results or other people don't take it seriously, but it is such a precious relationship where if it erodes the relationship between parents and children we just see it affecting society so negatively in many different areas and we see it negatively affecting the church where the church uh you know it's it's weaker when there are no young children there are no youth it seems to be a a big issue in a lot of churches where we struggle to retain our youth and actually a lot of that can go back to the relationship between parents if it's a healthy relationship we tend to see children uh, staying in church longer uh, if they, and I, I, I haven't actually researched this uh, a great deal. This is just off the top of my head, but I've, I've heard this and I, maybe you can back it up. Um, the one of the top, if not the top indicators of whether or not a child will stay in church beyond high school or college is if they see their father singing in church. Mm. And I don't know if you've heard that before. And again, I can't, back this up with, with yeah i don't research, know if i've heard but... it specifically attached to the singing uh but i know mm-hmm. I've, I've i've heard it attached to his his presence there and his his mm-hmm. active presence there so that makes sense and i mean i, I man i always tell i always tell fathers to sing it's mm-hmm. there's nothing manlier than singing so anyways but that's yes. <laughs> that's maybe maybe a bit of us and there's nothing better we can give to our kids than our own singing the lord gave each one of us an mm-hmm. instrument we ought to use it and and men be bold. Go, sorry, go ahead, Pastor. Agnes. Yeah. Well, and I think it's actually tied to, even if it isn't singing, just like you said, the presence there. Mm. Um, ch- children, w- when they see what is important to their parents, uh, and, and maybe the research shows just, just the way God has set things up a little bit more so with the Father, when they see what's important to them, uh, their parents, it's important to them too. So if you bring your children to church, it might not seem like you're doing a whole lot you might not see the fruits of that but if you do that faithfully continually um that is something that leaves a, an impression on them where my my parents think it's important enough to take me to god's house week after week to hear about the good news of jesus christ that's something that i i shouldn't just 
you know, neglect uh, as soon as I get the chance. And I think that's one of the reasons I kept going to church, you know, in, in college. It was it was just so ingrained because my parents took us to church every week. And I have uh, I owe a lot of my my faith formation to them. Um, but even, you know, even beyond that, even if it's just a simple we eat once a day and, and read a devotion. Uh, we pray together as a family. Uh, even if you're not a parent, you can encourage other families by being in worship yourself and volunteering for Sunday school to shape their children. Uh, it's it's kind of a thing where, um, you know, where when, when Solomon says the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. It's a lot easier said than done, but it's it's really uh, such a precious vocation where uh, if you shape your children, you know, you can't always, con- of course, you can't control what they do after they leave high school or college. But uh, what you can do is, is say, I'm going to be faithful and wise and imparting this wisdom and righteousness. And I, I just think it's so important because I, I do think our culture really doesn't emphasize how important parenting is. Um where careers as important as they are often pushed to to say you should pursue this instead of having children uh of course some families can't have children there are plenty of legitimate reasons not to have them but a lot of the times it's if you have a choice between the two careers are typically said this is more valuable this is more precious when the scripture teaches children are a gift from the lord um you know you see large families and they're kind of almost mocked in a way sometimes or uh criticized as being irresponsible or um something that, you know, why on earth would you choose to have so many children when you could be doing this or that with your life? Um, and I know my parents received a, a bit of this criticism for having, I, I have six brothers and four sisters, which I'm so thankful to be in a family like that. But, you know, you hear about it and you get all kinds of questions, you know, are you, you being responsible trying to support all of them? Why would you impose that on society when they raised us very well and uh, did a great job. Um, And even stay-at-home parents uh, are quite disparaged where you hear so often you don't have a real job when in reality they're working anywhere from three to a dozen jobs depending on how if they have children or what things they take care of. But it's such a That's why I really want to impress upon, you know, if you're a parent listening, if you're someone who supports a parent, you're doing a very uh, excellent thing. It's such a high calling. It's a precious vocation. And um, and, and certainly Solomon is probably addressing a little bit more the the relationship from the child to the parent. Uh, obviously it goes both ways. So uh, if you're, you know, children are, you know, obviously respect their parents and uh, give them reasons to rejoice when um, Solomon says, let your father and mother be glad, let her who bore you rejoice. That's certainly a big part of it, but it also goes to uh, parents kind of set children up for that, you know, raising them well, teaching them the faith, uh, setting them up for a good foundation that they can take into their family. So all this is to say, you know, parenting and, and being a child, it's its difficult, but when you do it faithfully, you might not see the fruits, but it's such a, a important, precious vocation that God certainly blesses. Mm. We see this throughout the Proverbs, that a verse that, say in this case, is directed to the son, to the child, ends mm-hmm. up having implications for the parents as well. well. You know, Solomon will speak about how you should be speaking, and he'll also then, in 
that same moment be talking to, well, what are you listening to? Who are you listening to as well? And so you see how the Proverbs often cut both ways in that sense. And and I there's, there's tons of comfort here for parents that they can know that what they are doing is a God-pleasing thing. And I think the same comfort is true for children, that, that the simple obedience of a child to his or her parents is a God-pleasing thing. I mean, we don't, we don't look upon on that as a very great thing. And yet that's the work that God gives us in the fourth commandment. And that's true when I'm a young child growing up at home. And it's also true when I'm an older child and my, my parents are older and I'm still honoring them and obeying them and, and loving and cherishing and serving them, all those verbs that Luther gives us in the explanation, that that mm-hmm. is a God-pleasing thing. And and some of this you know, is a is probably a necessary call to us today as as even older children, you know, like your your life now as a child brings joy to your parents in as you live according to the wisdom that they gave you. So keep doing it. And if you see yourself having forsaken from that, repent, return to Christ and and mm-hmm. give your parents that that joy of of seeing you, particularly as as we think of Christian parents, seeing you in the same church that they're a part of, that you are mm-hmm. together in Christ. What a what a great joy that is for parents to to see their adult children a part of the faith that they imparted to them when they were growing up. It, I mean, there, there's great joy. This is such a, an important part of our, our lives as people. As you said, it's the first, the first commandment that deals with our neighbors, and, and we do well to pay very close attention to it and not just you know, skip over it to the fifth, the sixth commandments, which is where it seems the news is often, when you, if you're reading the news on Facebook, watching it on TV, or however you get it, the fifth and sixth commandments always seem to be the ones that, that come up. Don't skip over the fourth. A- and remember the importance of father and mother and that relationship where where society starts. Uh, we, we would do well to, to listen to Solomon here. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left, Pastor Ackman. <laughs> so we should probably read the rest of the text. And and there's a few more things mm-hmm. that we, we want to, a few other topics we want to pick up today. So we're picking up here again in, in Proverbs 23, now at verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's the end of our text for today. That was Proverbs 23. That was verses 26 through 35. So, Pastor Heckman, that that last section, verses 29 through 35, which really all goes together, it's one of those longer, we don't always see this in the book of Proverbs, where you get these longer sections, but that's one. And, and honestly, as I was preparing for this show today, that was one of those sections, as I was reading what Solomon says there about drunkenness, I think I'd forgotten that that was in the Bible, that sort of vivid description of what mm-hmm. drunkenness is like and and how bad it really is. I mean, it's something we, and God bless Lutherans, 
but sometimes I think we we look upon those who are teetotalers, which uh, granted that's not a biblical position. That alcohol is a good gift from God, but sometimes perhaps we we need to take great care that we don't lose sight of the concern Solomon gives here, and we see elsewhere in the scriptures for drunkenness, and then larger, and I think this will take us to some of the verses we read on the first side, the lack of self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So take us into that that conversation, drunkenness, self-control, the the wisdom that Solomon's giving us here. Mm-hmm. So you, re- you referenced the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what I thought of too, reading this in Galatians 5, and when Paul outlines the practices of those who walk according to the flesh, uh, drunkenness comes up in that list, and then he immediately contrasts it with the fruit of the spirit and the final one is self-control. So those are pretty closely related in Paul's mind and especially in Proverbs here. And so I, I agree uh, with you, especially when you pointed out that these things that we abuse are inherently, you know, they're, they're not inherently bad. They're good gifts from God when used according to his will. Uh, but, course we are sinners by nature and by deed and we are inclined to take good things god gives us and uh, you might say overindulge or take take them too far so we see a good thing from god and we see i I can use this um according to his will or i can take it a step farther and abuse it which affects my own body affects other people and this is this is really what Solomon is warning against it's you know it's overindulgence doesn't always lead to addiction but that's kind of an one of the worst things it can lead to it's an all too easy pit to fall into um where Solomon is calling us to self-control not not just Paul doing it in Galatians 5 but also Solomon here uh we want to be self-controlled to avoid such abuses and and it, like you said the language is quite vivid uh, it's it's really interesting when you think about it a little bit more, uh, especially with drunkenness, um, where he's trying to create this really scare, kind of scary picture, uh, I, I guess, or, or vivid picture to show you just how bad it can get. Um, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, so that feeling of dizziness um, where you're not moving, but you feel like you are, kind of like being... Uh, kind of moved by the waves of the sea and then, you know, being lying on top of a mast is kind of an interesting picture, but it's again, being on a boat that's out at sea and you're moving around, but you don't really have any control of what you're doing. So I think he's using this imagery to kind of emphasize it's a very poor place to be. It will lead to at the, at the very best foolish words and unwise decisions, which again, Paul or sorry, Solomon is trying to encourage us to wisdom and, um, and, uh, self-control and all that. But then the, the, the kind of the worst case scenario is destruction, maybe even death, but you, you really negatively affect so many relationships. And it just shows that this sort of unwise living can have very negative consequences, even kind of in comparison to other unwise things. So it's certainly this is where the law comes in is there are, again, we talked about it, consequences for overindulgence and not just drunkenness, but you look, we, I, um, back in verse 20, uh, gluttony, basically these things, drunkenness, gluttony, overindulgence, put you in positions to make poor decisions, to live um, ungodly lives. But then I kind of thought reading this, they're, they're, I, I want to add a couple things that we don't really see in the text here. Um, 
One is what are some ways to counter this overindulgence because there certainly are ways to counter it. And then two, uh, what is the gospel for people who do fall into this sort of thing? Drunkenness, gluttony, all this. Uh, so I think to the first point, it's good to remember that if you look, I believe it's Galatians 6, and I think it fits really well in the context if you look at it, because Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, avoiding works of the flesh. In chapter 5, he talks about self-control, and I believe it's the very start of chapter 6 where he talks about bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And I believe the, the burdens in the context that he's speaking of have to do with the burdens of temptation and falling into sin and and supporting your brother, whether it's calling them to repentance, to get out of a very destructive situation or when they felt the pangs of the law and repent, it's, it's um, encouraging them with the good news that there's forgiveness for this. Um, So when we talk about bearing one another's burdens that uh, can can play out in all kinds of ways. I know a concept that a lot of people use is accountability. Uh, so having someone to, if they see what you're doing is destructive or unwise, they can alert you to that and encourage you. I don't think this is good for you. Let's find ways to get away from this. That's kind of what we see in AA meetings. Uh, very a good thing for people who are struggling with alcohol addiction or former addiction. Uh, that's just a, a really straightforward way where you can see you're not in this battle alone, so to speak. You have other brothers and sisters in Christ, other community members who can come alongside you and help you battle uh, this crisis into which you've fallen. Uh, And also even things just like prayer, praying for self-control, hearing the word of God and the word working within you, God working through his spirit uh, to bring that self-control. So there are ways to battle this, but I think more important to these two points is that there is forgiveness uh, for for people who engage in uh, overindulgence uh, with God's good gifts. Um, Because addiction truly is, for many people, a frustrating battle, which can last a lifetime. It's sometimes characterized by steps, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, And even though we certainly strive for self-control and rejoice in those, you know, victories where we overcome temptation, there is still, there's going to be that aspect of it where you fall into temptation. And when that does happen, God, God wants you to know that that doesn't define you as his child. Uh, The sinner is defined by the grace of God in Christ. Uh, And when you're, when you fall into these sins, God calls you to his house to receive his gifts of forgiveness and uh, forgiveness of sins and the word of God to really, as Luther says, calm and heal our terrified consciences. So uh, there, there are many Things we could say about this, but I think what Solomon is saying here is recognize the dangers of overdoing it, but also remember that uh, God forgives the sins of those who repent of these things and gives us means by which we can combat this. Um, Yeah, I mean, that that forgiveness is there in the fear of the Lord that we were talking about. It isn't always made explicit here in Proverbs itself, but that's where keeping Proverbs in the wider context of, of all of Scripture and what that fear of the Lord is, is, is so important. We've got just under about four minutes left, Pastor Heckman, and I think I think a good way to close and, and wrap things up is a verse that we, we jumped over a little bit. It's, it's within some of those verses that talk about listening to your parents. It's verse 23, chapter 23, 23. Solomon writes, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom 
instruction and understanding. What's the image here, and, and how does this image help us to find wisdom, and how does it point us to Jesus Christ as our Savior? Mm-hmm. So this is, again, yeah, like you said, embedded in the central kind of portion of this passage where it's really easy to gloss over it. Uh, but I, I kind of attached onto the exhortation, buy wisdom and don't sell it. I thought that was an interesting image. So I thought, what what does he mean by buying and selling wisdom? Uh, so you think of a marketplace where, you know, if this were a commodity uh, and you went to, to, to buy it or sell it. Uh, what is, what does he mean by that with that image? Well, I, I think what he's trying to say is to sell wisdom is to basically uh, live your life as though wisdom is unimportant to make choices that devalue wisdom or hinder your reception of it. Um, and this can take a lot of different forms where we talk about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom where is the fear of the Lord instilled in us and fostered? Well, the primary place is God's house in worship, where we receive word and sacrament to shape our faith and uh, forgive our sins and bring us comfort and learn what is what is God's will for us. And if you're staying away from that, it's as, basically as though you're selling that wisdom for whatever you're choosing instead. Um, and it could even also be uh, even just going back to envying sinners and mimicking their lifestyle, that's kind of selling wisdom and buying whatever else they're selling, you might say. Uh, so it's to sell wisdom is to place a greater importance on things that are more appealing in the present, uh, things that have more immediate gratification rather than uh, long-term benefit and more immediate difficulty maybe. Then thinking about buying wisdom is essentially the opposite. It's putting the highest value on what is the will of God, what is He teaching me in His Word, and then using, you know, our, our best time, our best energy, our best resources to pursue that. Uh, and again, that means uh, being in the Lord's house to receive His gifts, uh, being faithful in prayer and the reading of the Word. Um, doing doing what God calls you to do in your vocations, living faithfully as a parent or a, a construction worker or a doctor, whatever it might be, um, and letting that uh, be driven by the wisdom that God has given you. Uh, there's really, I mean, you can't put a price on it, um, but you would say it's worth whatever time and energy you put into acquiring them uh, where God gives it to you. And I think the key thing to remember here again is I I think this comes up again and again and again in Proverbs, uh, the dividends will not be necessarily visible or immediate, but as Isaiah says, the word of the Lord never returns void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent out. So grounding your life in the word of God, the source of wisdom um, is something that, uh, it, it gives us more than we can ever imagine probably. And, and it's certainly more valuable than money, more valuable than other things, but uh, it, it keeps us faithful to the Lord. It gives us encouragement and strength and understanding. Um, and, and perhaps to close uh, with just one more note, I, I immediately thought of um, Paul's admonition in first uh, Corinthians one thirty through 31, this might be something good to close on. Uh, Paul says, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption 
so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Jesus ultimately is the source of all, all this wisdom and righteousness that Solomon writes about. So we receive wisdom from Christ. He is the word of God, the word made flesh. He is our righteousness. So that's something that's given to us through what Jesus has accomplished. And we can see that, uh, again, God is the source of wisdom. Uh, primarily, he gives that to us in Christ. And as we um, follow Christ himself, admonishing us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think it only, you know, that, that only just, that forms really the foundation for what Solomon is saying here is this is, there's nothing more valuable than the word of the Lord, uh, specifically Jesus Christ. And when you make that uh, the foundation of your life, you're not going to see the immediate gratification. You're not going to see the success that worldly people experience, but you do um, have your life grounded in the right place. Uh, and that's certainly <laughs> very wise and, and very uh, good, uh, a good principle to live on. So Pastor Joel Heckman is the pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us this morning with Proverbs 23, verses 15 through 35. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>